Let me take you back in time to ninth grade Ben. It's an ugly picture, all right? Uh, where I grew up, little you know, town that I grew up in, the way our schools were set up, we had schools for 7th and 8th graders, we had schools for 10th through 12th graders, and then there was a separate school for the freshmen. And it was an awful thing, all right? Like it was, it was a rough school in a rough place in a rough area of town. It was bad all the way around. It was actually old army barracks that had been built for World War II uh, training bomber pilots and they'd convert it into a school and they figured that it, you know, it could max out at about 500 students. So there were a thousand of us there. And uh, you know, you go to class and there would be times when there weren't enough desks for all the students and there were times when there weren't enough teachers for all the classrooms. It was a miserable existence, okay? I remember from that year my geometry class, okay? And I, I remember going to it and thinking, like, like hopeful things. I'd always been a little bit decent at math, and so I thought it was going to be good. And I remember we had this tiny little woman that was our teacher. She really loved Jesus. She liked math. Sometimes she could tolerate her students, all right? And that's kind of what we had going on. And, and I remember when she passed out the geometry textbooks, and I started flipping through, and maybe you're like me, as I'm flipping through this textbook, I asked, where are all the numbers? It was all words, right? And I remember like going through the class and our tests looked more like language arts tests than they looked like math tests. It was the worst math I'd ever experienced in my life. There was no numbers. I just kept waiting. Like at some point, are we going to add something together? And it just never happened, right? And we did these things called if-then statements. Do you guys remember those from your geometry days? We had to write them out. They were the rules of geometry, and you had to write them out. We had these little note cards that we had to keep, and you'd write them all out, and you'd, we had this catalog thing that you had to keep them in, and then the tests were your ability to recite these if-then statements back. It was horrible. It was the worst form of math I've ever experienced, right? It wasn't math at all. We had to learn stuff like this, right, some of our if-then statements. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. You guys remember that? Basic if-then statements. I think back to geometry, I think of Pythagorean's theorem, and there's some if-then statements that are based off of that. If, the, if you have a right triangle and C is that long side, the hypotenuse, I think that's a real thing, right, is the longest side, then A squared plus B squared equals C squared, right? If those two criteria are met, if A is the B and B is C, then we know that this is also true. And we know that if A squared and B squared equals C squared, if it's a right triangle and C is that long side, right? If, if we can determine these criteria, then we know these other things to be true. And as much as I hated geometry, the concept of an if-then statement has stuck with me. It stuck with me. If you can determine something to be true, then you can find where it impacts other applications. If you can determine something is true, if something is accurate, then you can take that piece of knowledge, the thing that you know to be true, and you can lay out <clears throat> other things that are going to be true from it as well. And there's all sorts of if-then statements that happen in real life, not fake life like geometry, but real life, okay? Computer programming is built off of if-then statements, and I don't know anything about computer programming other than that if you do certain things, then certain things happen, right? Criteria, you, you, you do something, it's programmed so that when you do this, whatever else happens off of it. There's other if-then statements, stuff like if, if you work overtime, then you get paid time and a half, at least you should be, right? 
I was reading up on some if-then statements, trying to find some stuff, and I came across a blog for young mothers, not typically stuff that I read, okay? Came across this blog for young mothers, and it was written to women, to moms, living in the home, taking care of the kids, who were dealing with uh, the loss of expectations, okay? You have an expectation, but it's not being met, and so then you have to kind of work through how to resolve the fact that what you wanted didn't happen, and they offered some if-then statements, okay? Some things to make up for these moments when things don't work out the way you want. And so they came up with something like this. It says that if, if your husband is going to be 30 minutes late getting home, if he's going to be 30 minutes late getting home, then I'm going to throw the kids in the stroller and go for a 30-minute walk, okay? Because you want to go outside anyways. You want to get the kids outside. You need to find a way to exercise. Plus, this is going to pass the time, right? So if this first criteria is met, then we're going to respond in this way. And then they even offered something like this. If my daughter wakes up 45 minutes early from her nap, which, by the way, is one of the worst things to happen in the history of parenting, okay? But when that happens, what I'm going to do is instead I'm just going to go ahead and vacuum the house. Because you can't do that when she's sleeping, right? And so you're taking a situation, a criteria. If this were to happen, then I'm going to respond in this kind of a way, finding ways to turn them into a positive experience. Now, an if-then statement starts with something that's known to be true, and it works to discover some other application. If you work from the opposite direction, if you start with the then first, just an observation, and then you move to the if, if you don't know the if, If you're not sure why what it is that you're observing exists, then it makes you ask the question why. You have the then, but you're looking for the if. You're looking for the why. Why is the opposite process of if-then. And if you go to Google and you type into the search bar just the word why, it's fun. I encourage you to do it sometime. If you type in just the word why, you'll find all the crazy questions that people are asking. It'll just pop up. And I'm not going to give them all to you. Some of them are too good to share right now. But stuff like this. Why is the sky blue? Why is the flag at half-mast? Why is my eye twitching? Why is Israel at war? Each of them is an observation. You can see something. You can tell that the sky is blue, but you don't know why the sky, the sky is blue. You don't know the if. You don't know what's causing the sky to be blue. So you ask the question, why is the flag at half-mast? You make the observation. Why is... Why is uh, my eye twitching? You can feel it, you can see it, but you don't understand what's causing it, what's causing Israel to be at war. They're all answered with this phrase, because. Because. It's what is or what will be causes what we see. It's an if-then statement, which means that if you have questions about anything, if you can see the then, you can make the observation, but you're looking for the if. You're not sure what's causing it. You need to know the if. You're asking the question why. And that's true about just about everything, including this church. If you have questions about Cap City, then you probably need to know the if. You need to know the why. You can look around. You can see the things that we do. You can make the observations about what is, but what's causing what is? What's the cause? What's the why? Why do we meet every Sunday? Why do we take communion every week? Why do we sing songs? Why do we we always ask for money? Why do we have life groups and why do we have specific ministries? We have ministries for children and students and those with disabilities and seniors. Why do we do those things? 
When you ask the question why, it gets to the heart of purpose. And as a church for Cap City, what is our purpose? What is our why? It's December 31st. I know it's not the new year, but it's the new year, right? We're going to start it off today, and we're starting this new sermon series where we're going to be kind of resetting our foundation for the upcoming year. And it's not a new foundation. If you've been around for years, you're probably not going to hear anything drastically different or new. You've probably heard a lot of the things that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks, but we want to remind us. We want to reset this foundation. We want to lay out why we exist and what we do, which means that the biggest questions that we have are about what we're aiming at. Why does Cap City exist? You can make observations. You can see that we exist. You can see the things that we do, but why? What causes it? Why does Cap City exist? That's a big question. There's even bigger questions. and We could just chase this trail all day, but we'll just cut to it. The biggest question that we could possibly ask, the biggest question that any of us could possibly ask is, is there a God? Is there really a God? This is our starting point. I think this is the starting point for every human, for every single person. Doc even dealt with this a little bit last week and even put it in an if-then statement. He said, if there really is a big G God, he's asking that question, is there really a God? Then the Christmas story has more going on to it than the simple woman who's giving birth in a stable. If there really is a God, then this story is something different. It's a little bit more complex. And there's lots of ways that we can address this question. For me, though, the most compelling arguments, I believe, for the existence of God come back to the context of science and nature. Science and nature make some of the most compelling arguments. I look at the vastness of the universe, the largeness, the size of the universe and space, and it continues to just go beyond what's previously understood. I look at stuff like this, pictures like this, and we think, you know, our, our planet that we're on is pretty significant, and you start putting it up in comparison to other things. What I find really fascinating is that we've got our sun, which seems just absolutely massive. In the scope of the universe, our sun is actually pretty embarrassingly small. It's not that significant. It doesn't even register in comparison to others. What's fascinating to me is that the more we study, the more we search, and the more we find out, the more awestruck we become. The more fascinating it is, the bigger things are. It's not like it's becoming more simple and we have a better understanding and, and it's just becoming more easy to explain. In fact, the more we understand, the more it actually becomes a little bit of a mystery. And at the same time, it's not just the size that's incredible, but it's the intricacies that are found in the details of creation and life that continue to just create this wonder. It's not just the vastness, it's not just the largeness, but it's the precision. It's the details, it's the intricacies of what has been created that continue to blow my mind. This is a picture of a strand of DNA. If you could type 60 words per minute and you did that for eight hours a day, it would take about 50 years for you to type the human genome. If you put all the DNA molecules in your body end to end, the DNA would reach from the earth to the sun and back over 600 times. I look at the whole of creation in nature and I see that it's too complex for random chance. It's too perfect for accident. I look around this world and I see that there's a causer of the world that we live in. Something put it all into being. Doc says it this way. He says it takes too much faith to be an atheist. It takes too much faith to believe that there isn't a God who's put all this into motion. 
Paul says it in a similar way in Romans 1, and I know that if, if you don't necessarily believe in God, then you may not put a whole lot of stock into something that's said in the Bible. But if you pull this out, if you take what Paul says and you pull it out of the Bible, it's still a really compelling argument. He says that since the creation of the world, since the very beginning, according to Paul, since the very beginning, God's invisible qualities, and then he tells us what those invisible qualities are. It's his eternal power, and it's his nature, his divine nature. So Paul says that from the very beginning, God and his invisible qualities, his power and his nature, have been clearly seen. That God has been clearly seen from the very beginning and that he has been understood from what has been made. His invisible qualities are seen by what is visible. His power, his nature has been made visible through creation. And then Paul says, so that men are without excuse. The biggest question, our number one question is, is there a God? And we say yes. We believe that there is a God. It's our biggest why. So if there is a God, our second biggest question is, can we know anything about him? Just because we say there's a God doesn't mean that we're all talking about the same thing. There's all sorts of different religions. There's all sorts of different ways to worship. Why is it that we believe in the God of the Bible? And again, there's lots of different places we can go to, lots of different things we could talk about. But I think the most significant thing we point to as to whether or not God has revealed himself and why it is that we can believe in the God of, of the Bible starts and ends with the resurrection of Jesus. That's absolutely why we celebrate it every week. Everything hinges on that. And there's lots of reasons that we believe in the resurrection, as crazy as that sounds. It's weird. It's hard to believe that someone has raised from the dead. Why can we believe such a thing? Well, for starters, there's an empty tomb. And that's weird because typically when you put a body in the grave, it stays there. If Jesus had not rose from the grave, then his opponents would have simply needed to show us the body that's still lying in the tomb. But they couldn't and they didn't. And that doesn't necessarily mean that he rose from the dead simply from that argument, though. His body could have been moved, except that there's a large number of eyewitness testimonies. It's not just one or two people claiming that they saw Jesus and then everybody else started running with these stories, but there are dozens and dozens of people who saw him, people who were right there with him, who spoke with him. There's a consistency in their accounts and the things that they experienced. And perhaps even more importantly, there's a willingness of those witnesses, those eyewitnesses, the people who saw him alive after having seen him dead. Those people were willing to die for their perspective. They claimed they saw him alive, and when they are put to the point of death, they refused to recant. They hold on to it. Why is that? I believe in Jesus' resurrection because I believe that he predicted it. I believe these other things, the eyewitnesses, I believe in the empty tomb, but I believe that Jesus, a man who claimed to be God, also predicted his death and his resurrection, and then he pulls it off. If Jesus really, truly rose from the dead, then what this man who claimed to be God said about God suddenly has a whole lot of weight, doesn't it? When we ask the question, has God revealed himself, this man who rose from the dead claims to be revealing who God is. And so what he says about God kind of matters. Jesus says that you're a mess spiritually. 
that you're a sinner, that you are separated from God, and that you can't fix you. In fact, that was kind of the theme of our Christmas season, that you're the reason for the season, that you're in such a desperate state that God saw the only way to save you was for him to give himself. That's who our God is. Jesus says that there isn't anything that we could do on our own and that God loves us enough to actually save us. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5.8. He says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. That's who our God is. He actually came on our behalf for our sake. And Jesus doesn't just say that you're spiritually sick or that you're spiritually broken. It's bigger than that. Jesus doesn't show up to make sick people better. Jesus shows up to make dead people alive. He says that you're filled with death. Ephesians puts it this way, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. You don't have a spiritual cold. You're filled with death. And you can't deal with it on your own. This man who claimed to be God, who died and resurrected, said that someday you're going to stand before God. And what happens in that moment will be dependent on your relationship with Jesus. That's what he reveals to us about God. And then Jesus says that he's the way and he's the truth and he's the life and that nobody comes to the Father except through him. To sum it up, Jesus, this man who claimed to be God, who predicted his death and resurrection and then pulls it off, revealed to us who God is, and he said that we are sinful creatures. He said that we're sinful because of the choices that we've made, that we are separated from God, and that we're living in an empty life in this world, and that we're facing eternal death in the next if we don't have him. Jesus says you need his truth and that you need his grace and that you need his strength and that you need his life and that you need his purpose and that you need his joy and that you need his peace and you need his hope. So let's get to an if-then statement. So if there is a God, which we believe there is, and if Jesus rose from the grave and revealed to us who God is, which we believe he has, then... If two things are true, then, then we know that the third is going to impact other applications, right? If these statements are true, then it means that we are Christ-driven. Why does Cap City exist? We exist to be Christ-driven. I want to take you over to our logo. If you look right over our baptistry over here to my right, your left, you're going to see an XD 24-7. That's an X to us, but it's really a chi. That is a Greek symbol it's an, or letter. It's an emblem that early Christians would have used to mark themselves or to reveal themselves. It's a, it's a symbol that they chose because it was the first letter of the word Christos. It was a way that they could identify and recognize one another. And for them, it was the same as saying Christ. The D stands for the word driven. It means that we're Christ-driven. It means that we want Jesus to be our Savior. We accept the gifts that he's offered us on the cross, that he has died for our sins, but it also means that we accept him as our Lord. It means that he's in charge. It means that he is our authority. It means that when he has an opinion, we fall in line. It means that when he speaks, we listen. It means that when he acts, we imitate. It means that we want to live the way that Jesus lived. We want to do the things that he did. We want to say the things that he said. We want to treat people the way that he treated people. 
It means he has authority over our life, and so his decisions are our decisions. We take seriously the things he took seriously. And what does he take seriously? We can make a very long list. I'll give you a short one. Things like humility, love, truth, grace, patience, obedience, kindness, service. We take those things seriously. If there is a God, which we believe there is, and if Jesus rose from the grave and revealed to us who God is, which we believe he has, then it means for us we will be Christ-driven and that we will respond by worshiping him. We respond by, by giving worship to this God. At Cap City, we emphasize two different parts of this. The first is corporate, something that happens collectively together. When we talk about worship, one piece of that is what's happening in this room right now and every single Sunday morning in this room. It's more than singing. We call this a worship service. Sometimes we call our music worship songs, but it's more than that. It's a weekly worship within community that we share together. We believe that Sunday morning worship, this time that we spend together, even this time right now as I'm talking and as you're listening, we believe that it is foundational to your spiritual health. We believe it so much that we have worship set up for every single age group within this church. We call this space in here, this time we call this multi-generational worship because if you look around the room, you're going to see a lot of different generations engaging together in this very time. But this isn't the only place where worship is taking place. Across the, the building in our preschool area, we have a space designed specifically for our preschoolers, a place where they worship collectively in a way that would be a little bit awkward for us to imitate but it's because it's designed specifically for them. Just below us right now in our children's ministry area, they are participating in worship. From time to time, you may hear, hear the, the bass thumping beneath us, which I think is pretty cool. They're worshiping God in their own unique way. Our students do this every single week as well. They do it on Sunday nights. Our 6th to 12th grade students participate in worship because it's key and it's foundational to our spiritual health. But there's a second aspect of this as well. It's not just something that happens corporately. It's something that happens daily and in an individual manner. Our response to this incredible God that exists and this Jesus who rose from the grave to show us who God really is, our response is to live a life in obedience and faithfulness to him and to worship him. And we recognize that God doesn't deserve an hour of our week. He deserves everything. It's why our logo isn't just the XD, it's also the 24-7. Our daily decisions are an act of worship to God. Every time we choose Jesus, every, every time we worship. Our worship is a response to God all day, every day, that no matter where we go, no matter what we do, our lives are an act of worship to our God because we are Jesus' followers. If there is a God, which we believe there is, and if Jesus has rose from the grave and has revealed to us who God is, which we believe he has, then we aim at Cap City to be Christ-driven, 24-7 Jesus followers. That's what we're about. Now, this sermon is highly introductory, all right? 
I'm really just kind of trying to set the table for the next few sermons. We're going to unpack this even more, what it looks like to be a Christ-driven 24-7 Jesus follower. What I'd like you to hear right now is that we actually have a plan. We have a strategy. We have a way of helping every single person be able to become more and more of this Christ-driven 24-7 Jesus followers. It's what we're all all about, and we're going to unpack it more and more over the next few weeks. What I'd like to do right now is I want to finish with some of those if-then statements. Remember, we go back and we say, if something is true, then it impacts these other applications. When I'm done speaking, we're going to sing a song. And this song is one that has some value to me. It's one of my favorite songs. has some significant meaning for me from a time in my life where it was very relevant. But I want to read to you. It's full of these if-then statements. I want to read them out to you. I want you to see these statements and how they impact us. Okay? says, if the stars were made to worship, and this is where my, my analogy falls apart, I'll tell you, okay? The word then isn't there, okay? But it's implied, all right? Like it's there, okay? If the stars were made to worship, then so will I. If creation sings your praises, then so will I. If it all reveals your nature, when they say that in the song, we're talking about the creation, we're talking about nature. It's that Romans 1 passage we talked about earlier with Paul. Where he's, where he's saying that it all reveals the nature of God. If it all truly, if God, if your creation truly reveals your nature, then I have a responsibility as being a part of your creation to reveal your nature. I want to do the same thing. If creation still obeys you, then so will I. If the mountains bow in reverence, that's kind of weird to think about, but so will I. If the oceans are roaring your greatness, so will I. If everything exists, if everything in creation that you have made exists for the purpose of lifting you high, then who am I to suggest that I don't have that same purpose? So will I. If the rocks cry out in silence, so will I. And this is the weirdest one of all, okay? If the sum of all of our praises still falls shy, then we'll sing again 100 billion times. I love this song. I don't know that there's any song I want to sing 100 billion times. Okay? Okay? A little bit of an exaggeration. May not be your favorite part, okay? I'm awful at singing, but I still sing. I like it. All of this language that I'm sharing with you here through this song, it's very poetic. It's very image-based. It's very metaphorical. It's kind of even emotional to some extent, right? These aren't things that our faith is built on. Our faith isn't built on this stuff. Our church isn't built on this stuff. It's not built on poetic imagery. It's not built on emotion. It's built off of these next statements. They're in the song as well. If you left the grave behind you, so will I. God came into this world to leave death behind him. Why do we hold on to it? Why are you holding on to it? At Cap City, we are about leaving the grave behind if you gladly choose surrender. We just looked at this in the story of Christmas. It was one of those themes that came out over and over and over again. Christmas story is the story of a God who's choosing surrender. The day that he shows up as an infant, he's chosen surrender, and then his entire life is consistent choices over and over and over again of this God choosing surrender to the point that he's eventually pulled off of a cross, lifeless and dead. If your God can step into the world and choose surrender, are you willing to say, so will I? 
Can you gladly choose surrender to this God? At Cap City, we're about choosing surrender to our God. And then finally, the last if-then statement says, if you gave your life to love them, so will I. There's this realization that happens in our Christian walk. You realize that God did all of this for you, and then you have this moment where you kind of lift your head and you look around and you realize that there's other people involved, that it's not just me, that there's other people that God seems to love as well. And if God loved the people around me so much that he gave his life, why do I think that my life is more valuable? Why would I refuse? Do you want to know what Cap City is about? Do you want to understand why it is that Cap City exists? There is a God. And that God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus who rose from the grave and we respond by leaving this grave behind. We respond by choosing a life of surrender to this God. We respond by loving the people in the world around us because that's what he did. And so will I. If you're not a part of this family, if you're not a part of this relationship with God, what are you waiting for? I want to invite you, as we sing this song, meditate on these words, but if you are moved by the Spirit and it's a time of decision for you, man, let's make that decision. Come up, let's have that conversation. Why don't you stand?